0: Our discussion of the 1980s continues with a look at the city of Boston during the 1980s. It's a divided city, and the black perspective is a different one. We're going to talk about it right here on the Monday Locked On Celtics Millie, Let's go!
1: Rain and Jays back with the vengeance. All the real Celtics fans in attendance. This is the truth like 34. It's like walking in the garden when you hear the rules
0: John Corrales here from MassLive.com welcoming you back to another week of historical deep dives into the Boston Celtics. We are in the 80s, spending two weeks on the 1980s because the 1980s are such a massive shift in the NBA and the Boston Celtics are front and center in all of that. Last week, if you've missed it, Monday and Tuesday we had a conversation with Danny Ainge in two parts. Wednesday, Robert Parrish, a re-release of our Robert Parrish interview. And then Thursday and Friday were Tommy Heinsohn in two parts. So you go back and if you've missed it, listen to those shows. You get a really in-depth, really up-close look from people who were there. A couple of guys who played in that era. And of course, Tommy Heinsohn who had a front-row seat for just about everything that has happened in Celtics history. This week... We're going to continue. We're going to get back onto our kind of regular path. I'm going to sit down again with Mike Dynan and have a conversation that will go from Tuesday through Friday. And we get a little deeper into the timeline. But I wanted to start the week by setting the stage a little bit. Tommy Heinsohn brought it up where he talked about black versus white and how the league was marketing Magic and Larry, Lakers and Celtics is black versus white. Uh, there was a, a packaging. They, there was a, a feeling in around the league and in the city that that was kind of like one of the undertones here. Boston had an image. LA had an image. And in all of the research and, and watching documentaries and things... Uh, About Boston versus LA. And this is really where the Boston LA rivalry takes hold here in the 1980s. The racial element is undeniable. And Boston has a very, very interesting kind of history uh, at, at this point. It's an interesting part of Boston's history in that moment. So I asked Dart Adams. You can follow him on Twitter, at Dart Adams, and he is uh, one of the most knowledgeable people about Boston, Boston's history. He grew up in Boston, and, and he has a first-hand look at the black perspective, how the Celtics were perceived in the black community in Boston, and in the conflict that, you know, you've know you got your home team winning championships. Meanwhile, there is a disdain for that team. And interesting reasons why there's a disdain for that team, considering the team's history. So I decided Dart's the guy to talk to. Dart is the author of Best Damn Hip Hop Writing, The Book of Dart. You can get that at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Walmart. He has a couple of podcasts, Boston Legends, which looks at overlooked Boston uh, basketball figures, inner-city basketball figures. So check that out. And he also has his Dart Against Humanity podcast, which returns on May 1st. Dart's the guy to talk to about this kind of stuff. Dart's the guy to follow when it comes to history, when it comes to hip-hop especially. We've had Dart on the show before, talking about music in the NBA. It was an awesome conversation. So here now is my conversation with Dart Adams. All right, Welcome back to the podcast, Dart Adams. First of all, how you doing? How you feeling? I'm
1: good, actually, given the circumstances.
0: <laughs> we always have to add that actually in there. It's like, hey, I'm actually doing okay. <laughs> I'm actually all right. <laughs> We're, I'm okay. I'm one of, the, one of the few lucky ones. That's good. I'm glad to hear that. So I, I thought you'd be the guy to talk to about uh, a very important element of 1980s Boston Celtics, uh, especially in in regards to the rivalry with the Lakers. So, oh, yeah. So the – one one element here, and Tommy mentioned it in the podcast uh, last week, that in this era of Larry Bird versus Magic Johnson, there is a very strong white guy versus black guy, and people are basically taking a pick based on race. Larry Bird comes here and is the great white hope. Boston, uh, you know, the Celtics are named after and you know, the fact that Boston is heavily Irish, um, and magic tells a story about coming into Boston. a oh, playoff goodness. series. Seeing, I love this story. Yeah. And seeing guys with Lakers gear on or hearing people say, Hey, go kick their ass. And when he says something to the effect of, Oh, it's great that Lakers fans are here. Uh, the reply was no, I just want you to go beat these white boys. So, you're a young a young kid in in this era. 19, in the mid 80s you're what? Pre-teen teens.
1: So, uh mid 80s I'm between the ages of 9 all the way up through like 14 15.
0: Very impressionable times in yes. a young boy's life. So, you're soaking all of this in. So, Oh, absolutely. And and just for people who may not know, you were, like The Boston historian, like you, you've got a knowledge of the city unlike anybody else. So why don't you kind of take me through some of, some of the the background here as, as we're setting up this eighties discussion we are in the, we're probably what, eight years into the busing, the, that ruling and, and the city is very divided Let's let's kind of yeah. set the scene because sports is like a I think the sports is a, a a reflective of the city and the city is in kind of turmoil.
1: Absolutely. Well, the thing is that people people don't understand is that, OK, uh, Larry Bird and Magic Johnson both entered the NBA in the 79 80 season and kind of save it. Yes, pretty much. Right. But what a lot of people really don't understand is that the Celtics teams of the early to mid 80s. Weren't predominantly white, right? Right. Like, um, and that's a big thing that people don't understand. Uh, the early '80 Celtics teams. I mean, you had at one point Chris Ford was a starter, but Chris Ford lost his job to a black guy. You know, um, you had uh, cornbread Maxwell. You know, who was on the team before Larry showed up. Yep. And he's even he remains a mainstay. Robert Parrish comes in later, and what people forget is that Robert Parrish was a mainstay. He was scoring 20 points a game, getting 10 rebounds, one and a half blocks, getting steals and everything, running the court fast and everybody else, and he was a perennial all-star from his time joining the Celtics, but Kevin McHale started on the bench, Mm -hmm. so Kevin McHale wasn't a starter. Danny Ainge came later. He was drafted, but he played baseball first, then he comes later. So we have Quinn Buckner that people forget about, you know, we have tiny Archibald that people forget about, you know, there's, um, Gerald Henderson, who's also on the team. There are other black draftees. So the team, like I went back and did this, so like there's seven out of 13 players on the team of black, um, this many players of black. It, when people think of the Boston Celtics, they tend to think of, uh, Rick Carlisle, Rick Robey, Greg Kite, before they think of the players that actually played the brunt of minutes were black guys. ML Carr. And most people think of ML Carr just as the guy who was waving the towel. ML Carr was a a mainstay. He was important coming off the bench. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: He was an energy guy. You know? Yeah. So when you think about all that, that gets lost. Now, more to your point, how did people feel about the Celtics, when things started to switch over from 85 into 86, the feeling about the Celtics changed because a lot of the black players ended up leaving. They started drafting guys like Brad Lowhouse. They started bringing in guys like Fred Roberts. We start getting players like Jerry Seastink. We lose Max. Max kind of sacrificed himself. This is something people don't talk about enough to bring in Bill Walton. And this all is... of a sudden for the um, 85, 86 team. Yes. Yeah. So all of a sudden in one fell swoop. Well, so it happens over two seasons, really. That team looks very white and very different. You have, um, Connor Henry, who's also a draftee, the guy who shoots the threes. Mm-hmm. So the team is overwhelmingly white now. And this is the greatest, one of the greatest all time NBA teams and the Celtics team. And this is the team that White America really latches on to. And what we also forget is that um Michael Jordan, I mentioned Magic Johnson and Larry Bird coming in the NBA in seventy-nine, eighty, but Michael Jordan entering the league in eighty-four, eighty-five was a whole new wave of um interest in the league. So Eyes are on the league more and more as the Celtics and Lakers come to prominence and Michael Jordan enters the league. So the media coverage of the 85-86 Celtics, they will pretty much shove down everybody's throat. You are locked on Celtics. Your daily Boston Celtics podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network.
0: Yeah, that that eighty six team. Well, obviously, you have, like you mentioned, Cedric Maxwell is out because Kevin McHale is being elevated. Uh, yes, and it, it, the this goes. This actually goes back to like the mid seventies. The mid seventies when the ABA comes in and the ABA merges with the, um, the NBA and like the first NBA finals after that, it's, it's Portland versus Philly. And, you know, Philly has Dr. J and mm-hmm. has, has ABA players and Portland yes. is the traditional, uh, much more traditional structured NBA team. And, you know, led by Bill Walton. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that is like, a flashpoint in absolutely basketball like black versus white and 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 so from there it starts to kind of press forward the the black players in the league aren't just black players there are flashy yeah. black players yes. so not only They don't play team ball. Right. So we have to make sure that there's a certain element here that it feels like when we talk about race, it gets difficult and sensitive. Yeah. But one element of this is the, well, it's it's fine to have black players. I don't have any problem with the black players. It's these kinds of black players. But these black players coming from the ABA playing more, quote-unquote, streetball, there's flashy, there's flair, there's creativity. Basketball becomes a vehicle for personal expression, um, mm-hmm. And that sets the groundwork for 90s, where the 90s hip-hop basketball, which we've talked about on the podcast before. Yeah. Um, this, the 80s is this transition period. So when we talk about this particular Boston Celtics team, it stands now in contrast to what you mentioned where Michael Jordan comes in and he's dunking and he's in a con- dunk contest with, with know, his the chains. And yeah. And the, the sneakers, the custom made sneakers. And like th- there's, there's now a different, not just the black player versus white player, There's a different, different brand of black basketball yes. player.
1: Yeah. And the other part is it. Um, so coming up, When people are seeing this happen, they're starting to uh, gravitate more towards in Roxbury, Dorchester, Mattapan, you know, uh, Jamaica Plain. Kids are starting to gravitate more and people are starting to gravitate more due to the fact that the media and, of course, the media, the NBA is trying to pull itself out of its low state. So they're using any means they can to sell the game. And if the Celtics versus Lakers, the lunch pail, Boston uh, Irish uh, yeah. Irish team versus the flashy black team from, um, LA is selling the league. Shit, let's do it. Yeah. Now, um, but it flew in the face of, you know, the fans, the fandom. So what happened is a lot of people from Boston, from all the predominantly black and Latino neighborhoods started, uh, leaning away from the Celtics and they became fans of the Philadelphia 76ers. Or the Lakers, or you know another team. Some people picked picked on. Um, actually, would pull for the Milwaukee Bucks. And the thing is that some a lot of cats weren't necessarily fans of the other team. They just wanted to see the Celtics get their asses kicked because of the way they were being pushed and marketed and sold. Because they knew that they would hear nothing but trays about the Celtics and the way they play basketball and how they do things the right way. Right. And it was very coded. So I think that that's something that's been lost that people have forgotten about. And yes, I've seen, I saw it my whole life. Now, uh, me personally, if you don't have Boston across your chest or, <laughs> or, or, or Massachusetts or new England or anything across your chest, I'm not rooting for you. Right. So, I understood people's trepidation. I understood why people were mad. I understood people pulling for other teams, but I'm not a fan of anybody but the, of the Boston squad. But yeah, absolutely. I was around. I was around for that. And the thing is that, um, the kids got it from the adults, Mm -hmm. the adults more understood the code, the coding and what things meant because they grew up playing basketball and they heard it their entire lives playing in the BNBL, playing in the um the Boston North and South the city league uh some of them played on um the Boston Titans you know the South End Squires so they knew what this all was about when you play you know uh division 1 division 2 basketball in in the state and they understood where the media was going
0: it's it feels like yeah so you get the reaction to the media thing Um, it's, it's interesting to hear because this is something, obviously, I don't, not being black. I don't, I don't have this, this frame of mind, decoded language where now I look at those 80 Celtics and I think from a purely basketball perspective, yeah, they did play basketball the right way. Uh, and so I want to know, like, how does that how do you how do you have a conversation like that where I sit there and say they did play basketball the right way, without it being oh they absolutely uh, did right without it being the coded part like explain the difference for people who don't understand
1: sure all right so there are levels there are layers to it right now sharing best sharing the ball moving the ball moving without the ball finding your teammates playing team defense sacrificing of yourself hustling. All these things are the hallmarks of a great team and great team basketball. Now, I'd like to remind everybody that in the inner city in Boston is flashy and like the guy who pretty much the guy who's credited with introducing the crossover to, to everybody is Charlie Scott. But Charlie Scott learned from two guys from Roxbury when he went to school in Lornburg Institute in South Carolina. Those guys were Spider Bennett and um Jimmy Walker. So let's just put that out there. Mm-hmm. Um, while this, this is why I have you on Rucker, for history like that. Yes, while while NBA, while the New York had the Rucker, Roxbury had their own version of the Rucker, and and Roxbury ran for years and Celtics and pros from all over would come down and play and get killed by some of the best. Now that being said, um, when you watch the game or you heard commentators talk about the game. They would say things, code words, that they meant for the white players versus the black players. And if the black players did something similar to what the white players did, the things that they valued, they would use a different descriptor Hmm. as opposed to the same one they did for the white player. And the crazy thing is that I need to put this out there. The Los Angeles Lakers won five titles in the 80s. Why? Because they played Celtics basketball better than the Celtics did. Okay?
0: hmm
1: Another reason why is because the Lakers, God bless them, could actually attract free agent talent. Now, why could they attract free agent talent? Because these players, who were predominantly, usually black, would always opt to play with the Lakers as opposed to the Celtics. Mm-hmm. And another piece of it that people don't talk about is that the Celtics lost out on a lot of young players because Casey Jones did not like playing young players.
0: Right. Right. He And Tommy touched on that, that Casey was not a, a talent developer. He he had no. his guys. And, I mean, look, what talent are you really going to develop when you've got Larry, Kevin, exactly. you know, Chief? I mean, that, that, that wasn't a, a place for young players to come along and learn and grow. That yeah. was a place where yeah. like, who can we get to plug in and say, all right, we need a shooter. Well, who's the best shooter we can find out there. Then you, yes. you try to get uh, a Jerry Seesting or, or somebody else or, you know, uh, Carlisle or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. So the one thing that has always stood out about Larry Bird now, Larry Bird is obviously, like, the face of the franchise. Yes. And so, when you think of the pushback, the pushbacks against Larry Bird, like Isaiah Thomas saying that if Larry Bird was a, a black player, he'd just be another good player. Um, the, if, if we're looking at this from a racial perspective, the Celtics, as a predominantly white team at their peak, and Larry Bird's the face of it. But Larry Bird is the one guy who always just pushed back against that stuff. Oh yeah. And, and has, you know, from, from the, like he never, ever, ever got caught up in it. And even when Isaiah said that his reaction was like, I don't care what he says. I don't care. That's not that he can say what he can say. Like he never once participated in, even remotely in all of that. So in the black, go ahead.
1: And a big reason for that is that if anybody knows about Larry Bird and studies, Larry Bird, Larry wanted to play against the best competition. And in Indiana, that meant Larry Bird would seek out and play against black players. And his game was tailored. If you notice for him to succeed playing against players who might be faster than him, might be able to jump higher than him, But he was going to do things that made him matter on the court, regardless of who his competition was. Mm -hmm. And he seeked out the challenge. So people tend to think that Larry Bird was the great white hope who who somehow managed to play well against, you know, the best players. But it's because he worked at it and he sought out the best players. So if you put a white guy to guard Larry, he saw it as like you were disrespecting him. Okay. So Larry Bird would talk smack to everybody. But the other part is that when when uh, that was said by Isaiah Thomas, Larry understood exactly what he meant by it. Mm -hmm. So he was like, we need to have a press conference. We need to air this out. This does not matter to me. You guys don't need to be worked up over it because I know exactly what he meant. And I understand the how the NBA is trying to sell this game and try to... market this game in order to you know appeal to the most people possible the bottom line is what we do on the court that's why he wanted that squashed immediately but yes were there hard feelings between him and isaiah that ultimately led to isaiah not being on the dream team but larry and michael jordan and other players on the dream team were were instrumental in saying we don't want isaiah on the team and it all came down to michael jordan but it was for reasons like that, but it was all in the, all in, uh, competition because, uh, people tend to forget in terms of Isaiah, Isaiah grew up in the Midwest playing against, um, uh, Mikhail. So Mikhail called him Zeke because that's what they called him in all the AAU games and all every, every, and, um, everywhere that they went and everywhere they played. So, and also back in those days, how everybody knows each other now and they're all friends and buddy-buddy coming up from being kids all up through AAU in college that was not the case back in the 80s you know so it was very it was a lot more confrontational there was hatred on the court so in that context it made sense but Larry all Larry cared about was playing the game and winning playing the best people so he wasn't going to feed into anything else other than that
0: Follow us on our social channels at loCeltics on Twitter and at LockedOnCeltics on Instagram. In the in the Boston Black community, there's this pushback now that you're saying that against oh, the way yeah. the, the way the media is 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 portraying everything. Meanwhile, there's a Boston team and civic pride crosses all boundaries. It, in well, I shouldn't say that, but uh, it, it crosses a lot when it comes to sports. Everybody yes. seems to come together when it comes to sports. So what's what's the is there conflict? Like you're you're different, but you're you're describing people who uh, said we want we want the Celtics to get their ass kicked. But you know Larry's Larry and Larry's flashy, and he's playing that kind of kind of basketball, and he never seems to care. What it, what's the conflict in at a time where the Celtics are a Boston team winning championships. And Mm -hmm. meanwhile, there's this kind of distaste for how the the team is being uh, portrayed or, or marketed. Yeah.
1: Well, a lot of it has to do with the fact that um, if the Celtics won a game, and again, for those of you that don't live in Boston or those of you that do, you have to remember back in the eighties, how things were the best uh, sports section, in my opinion, was the Boston Globe, but you also had some, you know, some great people writing at the Boston Herald, right? Now what the Celtics used to do, and I was told this by Celtics, uh, when the Celtics won a game, they would go get the Globe and the Herald, and they would see the pictures, see whose pictures appeared in the paper when they won a game. If they lost the game, they would have wagers on whose pictures appeared in the paper, Sometimes it would go to the paper and it would be a picture of Robert Parrish in the loss or Dennis Johnson in the loss or Darren Day in the loss. But when they won, it was Larry. It was Kevin. You know, it might be Danny Ainge. You know, it might be a shot of Jerry Seasting making a layup or something. Mm-hmm. And that was a game that they played within themselves. So just to give you an idea. But. Even people who like wanted to see the Celtics lose, they were not going to deny themselves that Larry was bad, that he w- that he was a bad man, or that Kevin McHale would kill everybody in the post. It was just the fact that when you watch a Celtics game or a Celtics versus Lakers game, the Lakers could be doing all the same things the Celtics were doing, but they necessarily weren't getting the same. Uh, calls or respect as the Celtics were in terms of the commentary or in terms of the way things were framed. And that was a huge issue. And then again, you know, when you looked at when the Celtics did have, you know, Cedric Maxwell be the MVP of the 1981 team, it was almost like people were upset that it wasn't Larry, as opposed to celebrating the fact that it was Max.
0: So, Maxwell is uh, pretty uh, strongly. He, he has he has spoken pretty strongly about uh, a lot of the stuff that happened. What was the feeling that you got at the time where he's now kind of run out of Boston? He he gets hurt. He hurts his knee. There's <clears throat> this feeling that he's not working hard enough. Max yeah. gets not only. Does Max get traded? He gets traded for Walton. And he, yes. gets, he gets traded so Kevin McHale can be elevated. Mm-hmm. So there's this there's this I think three pronged thing. Absolutely. Max, Max takes the fall, McHale gets elevated, and Walton comes in. So in a, a community, and you you alluded to this earlier, that is kind of watching all of this. What what's the perspective like? I what what's this feeling like? Like oh, Mac, oh. Max is run out of town.
1: Yeah, but the other part is that we knew it was coming. Like you couldn't keep Kevin McHale on the bench forever. Kevin McHale was like six man or a six man runner up for what three years straight or something crazy like that. Yeah, he, and he was young.
0: Yeah, he wanted a couple years in a row, I think. Yeah, so it was clear Kevin McHale is going to
1: take that power forward spot. And it was just a matter of time, of or a matter of time, and how they were going to get Max out of there, because Max is either going to go to the bench or he was going to get traded. But what ha- happens is Max get traded for a a broken guy who a lot of people thought had nothing left in the tank. However, that trade, and this is what made it worse, that trade worked out incredibly well for the Celtics. Yeah, you get Bill Walton who's a tremendous passer and an amazing rebounder given his age. If you go back and you look at the stats, you see what his rebound percentage was. It's insane. If you watch the games and then you watch his ball awareness and the way he handled the ball and he passed. So Larry Bird is a tremendous passer, but also he's an amazing interior passer. All right. Yeah. And then you have Bill Walton, who has the same type of court awareness. But when you take Bill Walton, Larry Bird and Robert Parrish, who are incredible outlet passers and interior passers and can knock down shots from anywhere within 18 to 20 feet, it's unstoppable. So people saw, Oh, they got rid of max and it worked out better for the team. And you brought in another white guy and we knew he was going to be gone and look at Mikhail, now Mikhail scoring 25, 26, 28 a night. You know, it all worked out perfectly. So that is a thorn in the side. It hurts, but we all knew it was coming. It made the Celtics better, but at what cost? But Max didn't ha- but if you look at Max's career from then on, you know, it was the right play to make for the franchise and for the team. But in terms of the like, city and in terms of like the people who live here it hurt it still hurt regardless because again we knew it was coming it was inevitable it was just how it was going to happen
0: yeah see this is this is really interesting because it's there's a it seems like there's a a feeling like okay yeah we get it this is good this is fine like you can't you can't deny larry's great mikhail's great that trade worked all of this worked but it's it's the outside stuff that's really the, the causing the reaction. It's- now, here's the other
1: piece of it that people don't really understand. <laughs> so, Dennis Johnson, all time great defensive player, man played a f- almost a full season with a broken hand and was still either first or second team all defensive. Okay. Yep. You have Robert Parrish, who is easily one of the all-time great centers, but he doesn't score as much as everybody else. He doesn't rebound and block shots as much because he's deferring to Kevin McHale in the post. Um, then you have the fact that the Boston Celtics were led by a black coach, mm-hmm. Casey Jones. And for some odd reason, people tend to forget that, Key matchup. So um we're looking at Celtics versus Lakers, Pat Riley versus Casey Jones. The Celtics had a black coach. They won championships with a black coach. The Celtics have won more championships with black coaches and had more black coaches and had them first than any NBA franchise. But somehow that got overlooked. That seed that just made some people so pissed off, you know, like. How can you overlook that if you're going to look at the uh, the racial component of everything? And then the other part is that people don't talk about this nearly enough. At the time these games were being played, L.A. was 10 percent black. Okay. Boston was between 20 and 25 percent black. But somehow through the magic, magic of marketing and spin, it's this. Overwhelmingly white city versus this overwhelmingly black city, but also it's a clash of cultures. I'm, uh, you, you, well, you're well aware that, um, there was a, uh, a podcast done that talks about the Celtics and my secret 1980, 1985, their single and they, their record label, MCA, uh, has them shoot it at the forum with the Lakers, even though they're Roxbury kids who were all Celtics fans. Okay. Yeah. And so that was another knife that people don't talk about, because it's like, look, you got kids from Boston and they're not even rocking with the Celtics, you know. Right. And their label was like, look, we're in based in L.A. Nobody wants to see New Edition playing with the Celtics besides New Edition and the Boston (laughs) Celtics, you know. So um, that was another thing. So. People tend to bring that up in the discussion, too. But there were all these different things going on in that in that era that, you know, really just, it, it just, like, even when I think about it to this day, it just leaves a taste in my mouth, you yeah. know?
0: Yeah, well, so, this is, the reason I, I want to have this discussion is because a lot of people don't understand from the the black community in in Boston from that perspective. And in the again from the like I said at the top, we're we're in an era where the bussing uh we're probably when Larry Bird gets to the league, the worst of the bussing was only like 3 years, like the worst of the protests yeah. was only like 3 years prior. So it's still all Yeah. fairly fresh. It's still happening um the perception is the problem.
1: Absolutely. And so, because when people think of Boston to this day, they pull up images of busing in 76 and 77. And I'm like, this is not even the city anymore.
0: Right. So the, Boston now is, is much different than Boston in the seventies and eighties. And you know, the 90s and yeah. So, uh, there, the, the demographics have changed, although, we we could have an entirely separate discussion yes. about the the way that, you know the neighborhoods are still there's still segregation you know in, yeah. you know the way the neighborhoods are yeah it's just uh, a
1: different kind of segregation
0: yeah so but it feels like so so sports is an escape but mm-hmm. it feels like from a black perspective you you don't get to have that escape you don't no. get to have that same escape in the eighties because of the way you can't even watch basketball and enjoy it and, and love the fact that your home team is playing well and winning championships because exactly the rest of the way it's being packaged is like thrown in your face in a way.
1: It's, it's constant. So, um, Everybody in Boston pretty much has an idea of what the experience like was being a, a Boston sports fan. Not entirely the same for everyone. Being a Boston Red Sox fan, my experience was different than the average Boston Red Sox fan. Being a kid in the 80s watching the Boston Celtics, sure, we would go turn on the TV, to 56 or 25 or whatever Channel was covering the Celtics, 38 SBK, whatever channel was covering the Celtics at the time. We would turn on the radio and we would turn down the television and we would listen to Johnny most. Mm -hmm. Sure. But when it was a national broadcast and we were listening to us, this is the NBA on CBS. You know, or when we were watching Big East basketball or something to that occasion, Mm -hmm. something like that. We would watch basketball, and we would hear the way they would describe different players. And this continued on throughout the 90s. Um, this is the reason why, and people don't understand this, this is the reason why guys like um, the guy at Duke, um, Christian Laettner, oh. <laughs> was hated. You know? Yes. This is why Bobby Hurley was on a level detested, but we 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 didn't hate him anywhere near as much as we hated Christian Leitner because of all the praise heaped on him. It's the reason guys like Steve Wojciechowski, the scrappy son of a longshoreman, who's heady and 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 plays with his heart, you know, gets all the accolades and everything, even though he has no shot of going to the NBA. Mm-hmm. But if you had a black player. Who, who hustled as much as he did, took as many charges, they would not get anywhere near the amount of love or, or, or coverage that Steve Wojciechowski gives. And I need to stress this. One of the, That's one of the reasons why it is so important that a player like Marcus Smart is so beloved in Boston. Marcus Smart's sh- shooting percentage may not be what you want it to be, but that man does nothing but play winning basketball. And if you want to win the hearts and minds of Celtics fans, that's what you have to do. The Celtics gave him a big contract because he does just that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I've had people from every fandom imaginable in NBA like, why do you guys love this guy so much? Look at his shooting percentages. Look at this. Look at that. Look at, look at him flop. <laughs> and I was like, but look at, the, look at what he does on the court. I could send you a percut. Of him winning game after game after game after game after game game for the Celtics. Now, if we go back to the 70s, 80s, and 90s, it's rare that a player like Marcus Smart would be beloved by those same people that he preys on the heady, scrappy, uh, smart player. You know, Mm -hmm. wow. And the thing is that there was a a piece done on um, Real Sports. I believe in like the late nineties or the early zeros about that, like the preconceptions of of players of different races and how the players used to make jokes about it. Like, wow, that was a heady play there. Like, wow, you have a high basketball IQ, you know, you're a coach on the court, you know, you're a high riser, you know, that was really athletic. Mm -hmm. That was cerebral. And the thing is that again, like it took players like Bill Russell, to get recognized as being cerebral and also athletic. Right. No, that's not this. That wasn't extended to, um, players like, uh, Pat, Riley. I mean, not Pat Riley, Pat Ewing when he was young, you know, that wasn't extended to guys like Akeem Elijah one, when he was at Houston, it
0: came later. So, the the perception – so when you're talking about the language, you're talking about black players are being called athletic, things that involve um, physical ability.
1: Speed, while, yes.
0: While, while white players are being called intelligent, their brains. Yes. They're being praised for their brains and – Black players are being praised for their bodies, which yeah. which brings back long-standing prejudices, and is is part of a centuries-long style of coded language.
1: Absolutely. So I've never seen. I can't tell you. Uh, Honestly, I can't tell you a player that was white between 1979 and 1999 that was described as having an NBA body. Mm -hmm. I I can't I can't name one. Yeah, I cannot. I, I can I can I can name some I saw. But I can't name one that I personally heard it come out of the mouth of a commentator. My friends. Hey, look at that kid. Wow. He has an NBA ready body already. Yeah. That kid jumps out the gym talking about, you know, Rex Chapman. Yeah. That's an athletic play. Or when a white player did something that was athletic, the way they said it or their response to it was they're blown away. It happened. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Versus had it been somebody else
0: right so yeah absolutely this is so I want want it to be clear how because when we have discussions like this which I I really do think are important because there there are going to be people listening and and maybe some people are going to hate this podcast and I'm sorry Eh. but there are there are people who don't quite understand like why certain things matter and words that are generally harmless. Like none of these words that are used to describe any of the black players are slurs or negative or anything, but mm-hmm. it's what I think is really important for people to understand is they don't have to be to reinforce a stereotype that Absolutely. they, and, and for the black community Versus, I mean, I don't like to say white community, black community, very, but it's it's shorthand for, you know, the the general uh, the general feeling that you constantly are bombarded with this this imagery, this this descriptor, this thing, and it it goes back to the beginning where all you are is a piece of meat and that's how you're treated and mm-hmm. the not adding how intelligent players were like bill russell you're right there is the, like one of the first black players that is is lauded for that i, I yes. when we were doing the 60s version of, of the histor- historical deep dive i talked about the lakers coach was it the Lakers coach or the Philly coach? I forget. I don't have it right in front of me. Who said we c- we could beat the Celtics? But once you put Bill Russell on there, he, he it's the mind games. Everybody's worried about yes. him, and and so, but you don't hear the players describe that way. So just to to reinforce your point, by not doing so, it it drives home this this kind of almost like subliminal like well the white players are the smart ones and they get things Mm -hmm. done. And the black players are just there to run fast and jump high and dunk the ball.
1: Yeah. And it really switches when we get to a stretch of the NBA where American born white guys are not entering the league at a high rate at all. Mm -hmm. And what happens is European players end up being brought into the NBA And I remember I wrote a piece about this. I was a basketball writer first in the early zeros um, online. And I remember writing a piece about this, talking about how people said that the NBA was going to be this percentage of European players by this year. And I challenged them on it. I was like, give it five years from this draft and let's see what the percentage is at. Because I can tell you that more of the high school players who are American born are going to end up being superstars and NBA starters and maybe some bench players for for uh five to eight years than the European players are bringing in, the first crop at least, because I understand basketball. It turns out, you fast forward five, ten years, I was absolutely right. But then you have to go back and look at why these people made these predictions. It was more so because they felt it needed to happen in order to keep NBA fandom up. Because they felt that players weren't going to be as interested in the league if they didn't see themselves on the court in some in some form or fashion.
0: So the the representation is a big element in all of this because you go back yeah. to you go back to the eighties and you know you can hear you can see these documentaries where you see white Celtics fans talking about like yeah we want to see a white guy on there do well because. That's what we want to see, um, but at the same time, from a black perspective, you want to see the black point guard leading the <clears throat> the the team and 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 to your earlier point, this is this is the interesting kind of w- presentation of it because the Celtics did have a black point guard. Yes, and they they specifically traded for this guy, and he's he's like. The, the final piece to all of this, you have a, a, a black head coach, a black point guard, and still the presentation is the, what it was. Yes. And the Celtics, for all of their history, first black head coach, first black player drafted, first all black starting five, all of these things, yes. that could have been something that celebrated another black head coach winning uh, a championship, but... It 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 really, it really wasn't.
1: No, absolutely not. So, like when I think about the 80s Celtics, like in the in the city, if you didn't play team basketball, or share the ball, violence might happen to you. You know, mm-hmm. because that's how basketballs meant to be played. Even street ball, you're crossing somebody over. You probably can't cross somebody over 12 times because at some point you have to get to the hoop and shoot. And the other thing was back in the days, if you cross somebody up and you shot and you missed, the play wasn't finished. People didn't celebrate if you didn't finish the play. So even in the changes in basketball and how people perceived it, it was we still in Boston followed this. These guidelines of how, this is how the game's meant to be played. The problem is that. The perception from certain people was that, oh, you're not playing it the right way, even though we're like, no, we absolutely are. It just looks somewhat different than what you're used to. I bring it back to the Lakers. You watch the Lakers run a fast break. The thing that Red Owl back stress was a perfect fast break is when you run up and down the court and without dribbling the basketball. It's just pass, 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 finish or pass, pass, finish or pass, finish. The Lakers were doing this in the 80s better than anybody. And the reason was, is because they had younger legs and they had deeper teams. When I watched the Boston Celtics and the Lakers play basketball, I throw all the coded language out, I throw all all the framing out, and I just watched two amazing basketball teams play basketball the way it was meant to be played. You know? But again, that's not what everyone else sees.
0: Well, I I mean, I agree. First of all, the fast break stuff was oh. when I when you can get the ball up the floor without dribbling. It's just yes. beautiful to watch and it really take it off the watch. basket after a made basket. Yes. Oh, that's Tommy Heinsohn's big thing. Tommy's like, oh, yes, pull, pull the ball out of the net and get the ball up the floor, um, which it's interesting that you know he, he thinks the sixty Celtics would have beaten the '80s Celtics. Uh, who I understand. Might- I understand the premise behind it, but
1: in execution, I'm not 100 percent sure what happened. But I understand why he thinks it.
0: Oh, totally. I mean, look, he's what's he gonna say? Um, <laughs> exactly. What the hell is he gonna he say? The, he used He played on those teams, and he and he coached the teams right. afterwards. What else is right. he gonna say? I mean, he's got he's got a you know a bucket full of rings. He's won championships. He was on the most dynastic team in, in NBA history. I will admit
1: one thing that he was right about. His Celtics were way deeper than the 80s Celtics.
0: Well, yeah. But they also had eight teams in the NBA back then.
1: Yeah, so they could allow for it to be. Right. But the thing but when again, when we look back at the eighties Celtics, right? When you look at that roster, like and also another thing that I haven't discussed yet is um Certain talented black players in the within the Celtics organization just didn't last. Darren Day ended up going to Europe as mm-hmm. opposed to staying with the Celtics because they wouldn't pay him. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Which a lot of people don't talk about ever.
0: Right. Nobody talks. Another about thing
1: after that, no one talks about Darren Day. Another thing people don't talk about is Derek's when when they brought in Derek Smith. And how Larry was pissed off that they didn't make it a point to keep Derek Smith on the squad. They didn't do everything they could to keep Derek Smith playing. He even wrote about it in his autobiography. You know, Mm -hmm. that's another point of contention. Uh, when you look at how, uh, guys like Brian, like, like how Brian ended up leaving the team, you know, uh, in order to make up for the mistake that he made in his oversight, you know, uh, our back said that he was playing defense, like people were going through him like a sieve. But then he goes to Orlando and he's playing some of the best basketball of his career. So everybody's looking back at the Celtics organization, like why'd you let that guy go? Right. You know. And when you look at the draft picks, if you go through, like it's hard to defend when you go through the '80s draft picks. They drafted a lot of guys from BYU.
0: <laughs> they did. They did. You have know? A, <laughs> They had three. They had Ainge, they had Greg Kite, they had Jerry Seesting. Yep. C- I always get tripped up on the Seesting C- name. It's a hard name to say, but yeah. And then uh, they brought in Mark Akers from uh, Oral Roberts too, which is yes, is basically another Mark BYU. Akers, Mark, Mark number forty-two. Akers. Yeah, Mark Akers, Brad Lowhouse. They didn't do themselves any favors with the perceptions. Michael Young, uh, right? I mean, they, but you know, they also, you know. Uh, they, they, it wasn't just that. I mean, they they brought in Reggie Lewis. They brought in Len Bias. They, their best yeah. players were supposed to be, you know, the next generation was Reggie Lewis and Len Bias. But, you know, well,
1: that's a key point too. Everything
0: changes
1: if Len Bias lives.
0: Oh, everything,
1: everything. Len Bias lives. He's in the starting six. He's in the. He's the sixth man easily, right? He's gonna move into the starting lineup. Now, here's what people don't realize the most, man. Um, The Celtics were going to draft Reggie Lewis regardless in 87. You know, whether they had picked 22 or 23, they were going to pick Reggie Lewis. You know, people like to say that the reason the Celtics picked Reggie Lewis is because he slid, because he had a bad um, Portsmouth Invitational Tournament, because he was injured, or what have you. But nobody else was going to draft Reggie Lewis in the first round Mm -hmm. but Boston. And Boston, whether they picked 22nd or 23rd, they were going to draft Reggie Lewis. And what would have happened is you would have had Reggie Lewis and you would have had Glenn Bias in that beginning six, eight man rotation. And there's no doubt in my mind that those guys would have moved up the same way that they gave spots to, um, eventually gave spots to, uh, to Ainge and this way that they gave a spot to, um, Kevin McHale. Yeah. There's no doubt in my mind that that would have happened. And if you have those guys in the league at the same time as a young Michael Jordan and Pippen and the Pistons and you have the uh, Bucks on the other side, then you have the Lakers. So much changes in the NBA between 1987 and 1993
0: that Lynn Bias lives. I, I mean, it's, it's very, there's a very strong, uh, case to be made that the the Celtics continue winning. Um, and, and, you know, not only that you have no Rick Pitino, probably like the entire course of Celtics history changes, changes. Paul Paul Pierce does not become a Celtic. Like everything after that is a ripple effect because you have two spectacular players, you know, one and two, um, that could play off of one another obviously we never get to see Len bias play in the NBA, mm-hmm. so we don't know how it would have worked out for sure. But I mean, it's a pretty strong consensus that he was going to be pretty special. Um, everybody who talks about him has that feeling. Uh, absolutely. But anyway, so the, the perception of the Celtics is one thing. The reality of the Celtics is kind of another there's a brief period there where the reality and the perception kind of like do a little dance in the the (laughs) mid to late eighties. You're like, all right, we're, you know, but really, honestly, that's like the only time that it, this perception of Boston as this white team in a white city is, is really true. Like other than in the sixties, when the entire league was, was struggling to integrate, but, the Celtics, and
1: even then, the Celtics had a, had a bunch of black guys on the team.
0: Right. I mean, they they picked in that fifty seven draft. They got Casey Jones and uh, Bill Russell. Two. I mean, obviously, Bill Russell is the key player, but Casey Jones yes. is a very important perimeter defender in Celtics history. Um, the Celtics, Sam Jones, is an incredibly important player. Uh, yes. In in that time, there are a lot of really important players. Uh, Jojo White. They pick up Jojo White. Like you just go through all of these in, in in the Celtics. Aside from you know whatever their perception is, their history is kind of different, progressive in a lot of ways. Uh, Absolutely. Which is just interesting, and and there's that because the NBA needed to be saved because black versus white. Was a strong selling point. Oh, absolutely. That is the perception that stuck with the Celtics, kind of now forever. It, it and so I guess I'll end it on this. From your perspective, as a black Bostonian, you have a, a franchise here mm-hmm. that it feels like, for me on the outside, you should be proud of.
1: Absolutely. I mean, when you think about it,
0: yeah, but when you
1: think about it before that stretch where the team is pretty much predominantly white and sold as that and it's the greatest NBA team ever, um, the team is predominantly black after that era is over when you have Larry Bird and Kevin McHale and Robert Parrish leaving and them and everybody going to the bench. You bring in a bunch of young players. Who are these young players? Uh, you got Reggie Lewis. You got Kevin Gamble. You have, um, Brian Shaw. You have D Brown. You have Rick Fox. I'm up to five, you know, young black guys. And then who right. are the point guards? Sherman Douglas and, and Johnny and, um, and bags, you know? Yep. That's seven. I love Sherm. (laughs) And so we look at those teams that were winning 54, 55, 56 games a year, but getting killed by the Cleveland Cavaliers in the playoffs because of height, you know, in the early Mm nineties, nobody had anything to say about those teams. And it was weird because during those years, nobody is saying these things about the Celtics. They're Celtics fans. Again, they're wearing the Celtics gear in the hood. You know, everybody has their Celtics hats on. They got their, their mm-hmm. Celtics starter caps. You know, they got the jackets. They don't have the satin ones anymore. Thank God it's the, it's the, um, starter <laughs> era. You know, all about the, the shiny satin green oh, ones. Oh, I
0: know all about that. Um,
1: this. yep. So, you know, the perception has changed and everything, but no one ever talks about that. How all these people in the hood who are like, we want to see the Celtics lose are bam. All right. We're Celtics fans again. You know, yeah. it's not an issue. But that era, it was. And it was mainly because of how they were marketed, how they were sold and how the media was pushing this. You know, this. uh Agenda. Yeah. T- towards selling the Celtics. And that's what turned people off, because, again, when it comes to your team and your hometown, that kind of overrides a lot. But there's only so much you could take, you know, I mean, look at look at black fans and their relationship with like the Patriots going back and forth. You know, Mm -hmm. we love the Patriots, but we hate a lot of the stuff that they do. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: You know, so it's always that it's always that slope. You know, I mean, that's always going to be with sports. It's why I stopped listening to sports radio because of the the nature of wording and the coded language and some of the fandom is also why I have a contentious relationship with barstool, you know, for the same Mm -hmm. thing. I love the sports, but I don't necessarily love every aspect of fandoms of the fandom, you know?
0: Right. This is really interesting. Um, and I'm glad you had a, a, we took this time to, to have this conversation because it's the, the way things are packaged is important. And to hear your perspective on it, the, um, I think it's important for people to know and understand, like the language, the packaging, the perception, the way it's pushed, the way it was sold, how all of that stuff is impactful on ways that, if you're not black, if you're not in Boston at that time, you just don't understand that experience is just a different life than a lot of people lead. A lot of people who listen to this podcast live a different life. So I'm, uh, I'm glad that you were uh, able to take. An hour here to uh, help shine a light on that and explain what the feeling was. So, no problem. What I'm here for. Thank you very much, sir. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Big thanks to Dart for coming on to the show again. He is the author of best damn hip hop writing, the book of Dart, which is available right now for purchase at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and Walmart. You can also listen to one of his podcasts. He has the Boston Legends podcast. Which is a look at overlooked basketball figures in in Boston history, the city of Boston, inner city basketball figures. Very inter- interesting podcast there, and the Dart Against Humanity podcast, where he just talks about whatever he wants to talk about. That comes back on May first. Dart, good dude, good follow. A uh, person that really very knowledgeable about the city, very knowledgeable about hip hop uh, culture, all of it. Uh, so thanks to him and make sure you give him a follow at Dart Adams on Twitter. Thanks to you for uh, enjoying, hopefully enjoying this this podcast and and uh, continuing to follow this podcast. This one was you know, a little bit different. I hope you enjoyed this because I think this is an important element. This is a big deal, I think for for people to kind of know the the sports encompasses the city. it's it's part of the city. And if the city is having these conflicts within it, that shows up in the in the teams In the fandom So I thought this was an important podcast When we're talking about the 1980s To kind of get into So we're going to continue again this week With the 1980s And then next week The 90s and we keep marching on We're going to bring it right up to 2020 We're going to continue all the way through So subscribe if you haven't subscribed And if you have, please share the podcast, tell your friends, tell everybody that they should be listening to the Lockdown Celtics podcast here on the Lockdown Podcast Network.
1: When everyone is on the same page, getting things done is easy. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that enables your team to make their point and move faster. You can even save time by going from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds Join the 96% of Grammarly users that say it helps them craft more impactful writing. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at grammarly.com/podcast.
0: That's grammarly.com/podcast. Easier said, done.